0: Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frinino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Since his days playing clubs and theaters in the early 70s, Billy Joel was always known for his passionate, high energy concerts. That reputation only grew, literally and figuratively, as he graduated into arenas and stadiums after 1977's The Stranger. That makes his stop at the
1: Spectrum in Philadelphia on the Bridge Tour a unique evening. Billy and the band were in fine form on October 13th, 1986, but Billy seems
0: to be in a much different mood than usual. He's relaxed, but not subdued. Calm, but still passionate. As a result, even the songs most familiar to concert goers sound just a little different here. They're often more relaxed or more thoughtful than usual. At other times, Billy adds bursts of intensity and grit to sections of songs he usually doesn't highlight. That makes this concert a special treat for fans. It's a solid show overall, but one with a slightly different approach to great effect. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel Live at the Spectrum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, October 13, 1986. This could sound like a cop-out. I don't have as much to say about this concert because to me, there's sort of an overarching thing going on that's much more profound than any moment in a song. I mean, I have points that I want to get to, but I don't know how you feel about this one. But one of the things that makes this a great show is Billy is in like a very rare, relaxed, reflective mood.
1: That's something that I picked up on as well. I don't know if it's because it's earlier in the tour or it's in Philadelphia, which is like the hometown crowd, but not in a way. It's a good show, but it doesn't have the New York pressure. He was a good spirits, like the whole run of the show, having a good time. He was loose. He was singing well. And just good energy.
0: Good energy, but it's not the kind of energy we often see from Billy. He seemed to be in the zone in a way we rarely see him. Like We've seen him jumping all over the place. We've seen him not jumping all over, over the place because maybe he's in a bad mood. This time around, it just seems, and I've, I've had shows like that. I'm sure you have too. It's like, you're just reflective, man. You're just in the spot and you're happy to just sit and be in it. And that works, even if it's like a big rock band. Yeah. And I think that's where he was. We could be wrong. He could have been in a horrible mood (laughs) and just masking it well. But then again, I don't think he often masks it that well. So I think I'm onto something. Yeah. It does feel like he was more
1: taking in the moment as opposed to worried about putting on a show. I mean, they were putting on a good show, but he was more, I think more just soaking it all in.
0: We've seen plenty of shows where he's defiant and almost like seems like somebody had to drag him out on stage to play. And we've seen ones where he's like really just not having it well what i should say is like even when he's in a good show he's still got that like fight in him his jokes are always a little caustic each joke feels like a like a jab you know what i mean he throws it out there he plays a little riff he throws another one out there he plays a little riff and that seems to be him in a good mood but it's still got that like you know that toughness to it there's there's just none of this here now the version we have seems to have some uh, moments cut out and we're assuming that's all talking, but even still on the parts that aren't cut, we just see him like going from song to song and it doesn't seem dismissive of the audience. It doesn't look like he's punching the clock. It just seems like he's in the happy musician place. Yeah. Which we don't over- always get to, but when we do, we pull up a chair, you know? <laughs> yeah. And fortunately this
1: show was pro shot, although degraded quality, we've got really good audio and really good video. Oh and to rewind a little bit, we're talking about uh Billy and the Band live at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. And this is October 13th of 1986.
0: I was still in Brooklyn at the time. I have no emotional resonance with this one, but I have to say it somehow feels like a Philly crowd. I don't know why. I almost thought it was the Vet or whatever. I think it was might have been still uh JFK Stadium back then. Uh-huh. But it had a big feel to it.
1: Had you seen any shows at the Spectrum? Now, granted, the Spectrum is no longer there. I
0: saw AC/DC. I saw Dave Matthews. I saw Springsteen. I take that back. Definitely Springsteen. Almost positive AC/DC because they have that other one. They have the hockey arena. Uh, Oh,
1: where the Flyers play. Yeah.
0: Well, somebody's going to kick my ass for not knowing it. There there used to be three of them down there. I I don't even know how many there are, but there was a newer enclosed one, and I think I saw Dave Matthews there. Can't remember the name of it off. They always change. Most of them change their names anyway. So yeah, (laughs) and it looks like this
1: one did. uh, Like three times after it was just the spectrum. It opened in 67 from 67 to 94. It was the spectrum 94 to 98. It was the core state's spectrum. I'm sure everyone just called it the spectrum still.
0: Oh, yeah, it was (laughs) always the spectrum. Yeah.
1: No one's calling it by the, the bank names.
0: I think it's, yeah, Wachovia Center. I think that was the other one. That was the, the newer one. Okay. Maybe now it's the Wells Fargo Center. I, You know, it's that's why I don't feel bad about not knowing this, because they changed the names anyway, and I don't go for sports. So you get what you get out of me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, this venue was open uh, until 2009. That's when uh, its last, you know, sports and concerts and all that went through, and they finally demolished it in 2011. So this is probably about the midpoint of the life of this
0: venue. It was around before Billy was playing it, so you played the Spectrum now, you know? <laughs> right. It seemed like a character in and of itself I think more than than some other arenas did. MSG is MSG, but it's like it's too big to be personal. Yeah. The Spectrum was like, yeah, it's Philly. It's a little grimy. It's yeah. got an old-fashioned look to it. You saw all the good bands there. When I saw Springsteen, it was he almost closed it. It turned out to be Pearl Jam that closed it out. They did like a multiple night run there. And I remember because I had the bootleg of the show I was at, I was like, I hear they're tearing this place down. And he wrote, oh, he wrote Wrecking Ball for the Spectrum. Yeah, I'm looking
1: at some of the bands that have played there over the year. I mean, it's the who's who of huge mm-hmm. pop, rock, hip-hop acts over the years. Pretty much yeah. anyone and everyone yeah. that was playing hockey arenas and basketball arenas played there.
0: Yeah, it was a spot, man. Philly's a funny place to have a mellow night, but <laughs>
1: here we are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mind you, this is only about two weeks into the Bridge Tour the tour started september 29th of 86 in glens falls new york and here we are only just over two weeks later october 13th at the spectrum here the opening nights of the tour jitters are kind of out of the way they're kind of getting comfortable with it and getting comfortable with the setup and everything they're finally getting to road test some new material which audience may may have different reactions to but you know bands always love getting to play their new stuff this would be the last full tour uh, of the lords of 52nd street lineup you had obviously billy you had liberty devito on drums doug stagmeyer on bass david brown on lead guitar russell javers on rhythm guitar and vocals mark rivera saxophone and vocals and some uh simmons <laughs> drums off to liberty's uh <laughs> yeah. right side A couple on the side yeah <laughs> yeah Dave LeBolt on keyboards and synthesizers billy is continuing the trend of having background singers that he did on the innocent man tour but it's now pared down to two Uh, And you have Peter Hewlett and George Sims. Doug is not singing on this tour. He did every tour up until this point, but the bridge tour is the first one where Doug is not singing. As much as I love Peter and George, uh, I certainly am missing his vocals here. To give you a little further context, though, there was probably close to 150 dates on the bridge tour in 86 and 87. And we are looking at only seven dates or so into the tour. This was a long tour, probably his longest to date. The Turnstiles tour was a whole nother animal. Innocent Man tour was pretty long in the first half of 84. But you had this one that started at the end of September in 86. And you are going all the way until November of 87 in New Zealand. About 14 months, 13 months of straight touring.
0: Yeah, you wonder if that had an impact on the on the performance here it certainly wasn't shaky but it, yeah it wasn't the craziest and you know tempos tempos seem to be on point you know tempos tend to get faster for almost any band the longer you're on tour the faster you can play that stuff
1: that's true <laughs> what's up on youtube is clearly uh, you know several degrees of degradation of vhs copy to vhs copy and ultimately digitized and uploaded so it's the the fuzziness of that Keep that in mind, but it still looks good. It sounds good. Aside from the Russia shows, this is the only footage that I've ever really seen. Well, some of the London stuff that was done just before, especially the first half of the tour, this was all I've ever seen of it. You know, I like seeing where a tour started and where a tour ended, you know, how the songs and set list choices changed between September of 86 and july of 87 when we see him in russia
0: yeah and what the song sounded like a little too just their their approach to them i mean the arrangements were pretty much the same but there's a there's a little bit of difference in how he's attacking them
2: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds
1: Unfortunately, on this, we're we're missing the first song, which was A Matter of Trust.
0: That makes a lot more sense.
1: Yeah, <laughs> as opposed to the pressure opening, which he's done before, I think.
0: Yeah, I thought it was a little bit of a daring opening, but it felt like it worked. <laughs> no, it did. It did. But he was
1: opening with the new song. Uh, he was doing Matter of Trust. With that being the big single of the day, of course, he's going to play it. So it definitely... Not knowing that at first, it was definitely puzzling going, well, where's where's the hit? Where's the single? We don't see that or hear it, but the video picks up with him walking over the the Yamaha CP80 and the first audio and footage we see is pressure here.
0: It's a good cruise. I know we're missing matter of trust, but you can already hear them sort of comfortably in third gear. It's not lagging, but it's not the most energetic, but it feels good. And that's that's where a lot of this show sits. His voice is very consistent in terms of his approach you know, we've seen him sort of vacillate voices. And this is one where he'll sort of do like what I call the Vincent Price voice. Or, and then he'll like come off bat and he'll do something else. And this one, he's not, he's about, I give him a solid 78% Vincent, Vincent Price, <laughs> but he stays right at that 78 the whole time. So it's not overdone. He's not like amusing himself. But it's not flat either. It is just the right amount of um, old school horror for a song like this.
1: You know, I've always wondered why of all songs, this is the one where Billy chose to really, really mess with the vocal a lot. Does it just make it interesting for him to do that? Because it's kind of a mid-tempo.
0: You know, it's a weird song. You can't peg what it is, and it probably makes it harder to sing if you don't have an established idiom within which to work. There's a whole bunch of uh, prepositions, but yeah. That's my theory that <laughs> I just thought of.
1: Uh, you know, one thing, too, that I'm noticing out of the gate is uh, banned wardrobe. Somehow, someway, this feels even more 80s than the Russian tour next year. The clothes yeah. are bigger and baggier and just have much more of a Miami Vice thing going on,
0: even then. Maybe they didn't want to go to communist Russia looking too flashy. They had to bring it down a little, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, when they went to Russia, Liberty's wearing the, uh, you know...
1: American flag shirt and all this stuff and they're all like, Lib, you might want to scale that back and he's like,
0: nah <laughs> I'm <I'll> still Lib <live. laughs> <laughs> right. It's in the name <laughs> That's right, exactly
2: <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> Now we go to one we rarely hear in concert, You're Only Human which, how long ago did this come out? That was about a year Greatest
1: Hits came out August 2nd of 85 and so You're
0: Only Human you know, was released as a single in June of 85 about 15 months 12 months and it seems to be getting a lot of reaction there's some solid uh four count clapping on this people are just pounding it out
1: yeah everyone knew it people were on their feet it's got a big groove with those you know accents on the keyboard even before getting to a hook so to speak it's recognizable
0: this translates a lot better live than i thought it would i thought this was going to be always too landlocked with sort of 80s studio production yeah but really i think as long as you have the right synth you can make it happen and
1: you know lebolt played on the album version mm-hmm. so he programmed those keyboards he, it's his sounds <laughs> he's dialed it in it worked surprisingly well like you said and seeing how well it worked i wish they would have given it a little more life i could see it dropping by stormfront things had to make way for so many other songs but i yeah it would have been nice for this one to at least make a little bit more periodical appearances
0: i did like the the scatting and the guitar fills at the end david brown has some great moments on this in this concert this is uh the first one we're privy to i don't know what happened on matter of trust
1: yeah yeah absolutely he's are uh, playing really well out of the gate and again this is another one too this is another thing that gives a different flavor from all the russian stuff that we know so well is because david's not on that tour it's uh yeah. kevin duke subbing on guitar so who did an absolutely amazing job i thought he was fantastic but hearing david in this era was really interesting and I, I was trying to key into him quite a bit as a result
0: so this rolls right into piano man once again great energy coming in it's not punching but it's just it's just rock solid he has a nice attack coming in this is the point now i know we're, we're really four songs in and not three but by now i'm like man he's not saying much He is just really hitting song after song even though it's early on You just get that feel like he doesn't want to talk too much. He's just doing it.
1: Yeah, and if you start listening to some of the other live shows, like we finally get a fairly uncut version of Live from Long Island, and that's kind of how it is. Like, you know, the first couple songs are back to back to back, and then he'll address the crowd.
0: Yeah, but just something about this one, like just by Piano Man, I was getting the feeling that he wasn't going to talk, weirdly enough. There were these moments in these songs, especially the ones where he's done a million times. It seems like inadvertently adds a lot of emotion into like just one or two lines so like just for whatever reason it's bill i believe this is killing me on this one he's just got more gravitas to his voice it doesn't sound like he's performing necessarily It doesn't sound like he's decided to make a mark out of this or it's a good punctuation musically it feels like the line hit him this time for Mm -hmm. whatever reason
1: there were also other moments where i felt i could see his mind wandering a little bit
0: yeah uh, but I, I think he was in the zone i think he yeah. was just in that place yeah it wasn't the uh i wonder what i'm gonna eat at the hotel mind wandering it was uh connecting with the deities <laughs> <Wandering> <laughs> right, right? a little more maybe not that uh severe but you know what i'm saying you're like your mind is opening up kind of thing
1: yeah we've seen him look ultra bored before and that wasn't it though it's worth noting that this was the tour where that started to happen piano man fell out of the set list quite a bit just the way you are did as well
0: lib is really behind the beat on this one we mentioned a few episodes ago on the liberty episode like how how behind the beat he plays he is significantly behind it on this one which is nice it also sounds like he's, he's billy's playing some either i'm going to say different voicings of the chords i don't think he's reharmonizing it but there are there are times when it's it's certainly not the finger positioning that we're used to On the piano, on this one. It's got those extra twinklies that that have made it in plenty, you know, for a couple tours by now. The rave up on the bridge is uh, especially spirited on this version. Mm -hmm. And he's just always in good voice on this show. By the time he gets to the piano, it sounds like a carnival. It's almost easy to forget that he's actually singing and playing because his hands are operating so independently of his voice that it almost sounds like two people right there. I mean, granted, he's played the song 20 million times and probably do it sideways, but still.
1: (laughs) It's still an impressive feat that he does it seemingly so effortlessly.
0: And he's gone on to say that, too, where it's like, he's like, the worst thing I could do is think about it. So he finally addresses the crowd. In true Philly fashion, he says there's a cheesy steak smell in the air everybody cheers and then i love that he does that and then goes into scenes from an italian restaurant <laughs> like you <no. laughs> what a, uh, segue. You're a cheeky one billy right yeah <laughs> <laughs> this one too it's like nice and early
1: we're so used to these a lot of these songs like piano man and scenes like anchoring the bottom end of the set and it just has a, such a different life early on it just has such a nice nice different feel this is another song too that really showcased Peter and George on vocals and I thought they were a nice addition
0: this is the first of quite a few great Mark moments as well Mark I think Mark and David really shine in this one there's some interesting harmonies going on around the horns on this one the rock and roll sax solo is really different than what we're used to Mark stays fairly close to the originals this time he just he just threw caution to the wind he really played his own thing here and it sounds great Billy uh, vocally hits my sweet romantic teenage nights like you feel like the spirit moved him this night on this on that line he just really came from the heart came from deep down in the cockles this one
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you know much like he did on the record where he just kind of goes into this other place in that line and it's like oh hello
0: this is the point where i wrote down i said there's something indescribable about how this is a great show it sounds warm and wet (laughs) like wet audio wise Mm -hmm. it feels like the circus came to town and i don't know why that's the best way to describe it but especially on this one it just had that feeling of like a whole community just dropped into this arena. Right. And they're going to pull up stakes, but we're all part of the same show for a couple of hours here. Yeah. Again,
1: you'll probably find me making comparisons to the Russian shows, because that's the other big document we have of this tour. I got so used to how that song started, that show started off, where they just had to fight to get the crowd to loosen up and be part of the right. show. <laughs> Not here. <laughs> nah. Yeah. nah. He's got them from uh, Note 1, as far as we know. Yeah, <laughs> You know, with the stage setup, it's it's very similar to what we saw on the Russian shows. However, because of the configuration of the venues they played in Russia, there was nobody behind them. There was people way off to the sides and then obviously in front of them. But behind the stage, it was just black curtains. And so it created quite an interesting black backdrop black backdrop um, (laughs) Backdrop. (laughs) behind the the band and the stage here which is how the show was intended the stage is in one end of the the venue but audiences all around it and it it creates a whole different kind of interaction which we'll see throughout the night
0: and there's a lot of wandering there's a lot of playing to the to the back of the stage
1: after scenes we're sticking in stranger land here for a bit we go into vienna and for this era it's it feels like an incredible treat i don't have stats on it but i i feel like this song fell away for a long long time and so hearing it here it felt so fresh and so so moving
0: for a night when he's this reflective, Vienna's the song to go with.
1: King into the vocal a lot on this. And, you know, we've talked about how Billy's voice has aged over the years. Obviously, that's how it happens with singers. You know, with Billy, as he gets older, still every now and again, you'll hear elements of what I call the younger Billy, like the 70s Billy. This is one of those songs where he goes into a voice in a register and sings with the quality that he was doing back in 1977 and
0: 78. He starts to change voices a little on this one, but he's not wandering like he does sometimes. He seems to be going more with the flow of the song than chasing a whim. Hopping back into Nylon Curtain territory with Allentown after this. I don't know that I've
1: seen these two songs back-to-back often.
0: I don't have too much to say. It was a great performance. Uh, The Haze really stuck out to me. Other than that, it was just solid, but nothing... Nothing you could point to.
1: Nice to see David Brown's guitar solo on this tour. But yeah, just a nice, solid, solid performance.
0: Yeah, a little similarly with Goodnight Saigon, but his high notes are really vulnerable here. And again, it doesn't feel like acting as much. And even if it was, that would be fine because he is dramatizing it. I mean, well, that's the point of the song. You know, it sounds more like a vulnerable person Like a person That's maybe In the jungle A little scared there Yeah <laughs> You know Yeah that And like Sometimes he he says Remember Charlie Close to the album Sometimes he really Punches it Punches Charlie With a growl Yeah And he's, he's As as with everything else In this show He's right in the middle On it He gives it a little grit Yep But not as much As he has uh, In other performances Yeah
1: Saigon here and Allentown as well. These are two songs where, again, by the time Russia came around, you could tell he was spent vocally. His voice is just ripped to shreds. And it gave those shows some character. It made them feel a little more emotional in a way when in reality, it's him just trying to hit the notes. Here, his voice feels so much more rested. He's hitting some of these notes with a lot less struggle now i'm not going to say effortlessly because he's certainly putting in effort but it he's getting there without pushing here
0: next one is uh this is an interesting one i think this is a highlight is this is the time which is apropos because it's the bridge tour he puts a lot of grit in his voice on this one especially on the second chorus and i think it gave this song much needed character i have a soft spot for this one even though i think the lyrics are a little scattershot and it's a little cheesy, but I think, you know, there are times in it when he touches a, a nice, genuine emotion. And I think just going for it here and throwing that grit in mm-hmm. finally brought that one out. They think with yeah. Mulberry
1: Street, it's like he's not like really going for it like he does live and it just works so much better live. This song here, uh, my two words on it are David Brown. I mean, he just
0: shines in the tastiest way. The big thing I would say is that on his solo, he really really was messing with the rhythm and you don't hear that too much from guitarists especially not like rock guitarists or pop guitarists you know as drummers that's our stock and trade when we get the spotlight is almost all we can do is, is play different rhythms guitarists tend to stay pretty straight ahead pretty unsyncopated because they're able to work notes and melodies and harmonies and things but on top of this he's really just breaking up these rhythms in these ways we we don't often hear him do let alone Mm -hmm. you know most people in this idiom and that was really cool i love that he started with some volume swells like that was pretty cool you know oh yeah you play the guitar with the with the volume all the way down and then you raise the volume so you get that kind of sound
1: there's one spot too where he he's holding the same note for a couple bars yeah just letting it sustain it's incredible I love how it's just carrying over as the notes underneath it change. That takes so much patience and discipline to really let one note talk so much like that.
0: And the wisdom to know which one to pick (laughs) that's gonna blend the way you want it under the chord changes, yeah. But, you know, before he takes a solo, he's getting, he's hitting some understated kind of nice response riffs to what Billy's singing. And then he hits it. And then there's that part where, like, yeah, where he's holding out those notes and one of them holds out and then. Billy kind of matches it. Yes. You know, kind of dovetails into his voice.
1: That's two guys locking in with what the other's doing.
0: I'm curious to know if they had worked that out or if David, like, was purposely sort of ended the solo on the note he knew Billy was going to sing to see if it happened. Billy seemed to be planted in place, but in a nice way musically, like... He just seemed cozy where he was, and uh, this is where I first wrote down the word reflective. Pulled out a lot of adjectives trying <laughs> to describe what I was seeing here, yeah. and that was one
1: them. <laughs> Billy is still at the grand piano. It's an electric
0: piano you know, song on the record, and it worked. Yeah, I mean, might have given it a little more gravitas, just, you know, not being as 80s sounding. Yeah. So speaking of one that, you know, runs the risk of being 80s sounding is Big Man on Mulberry Street, you know, in a different way. And that's just like, oh my God, we can now record a big band with 20 million mics. Let's do it. But they got some nice jamming on this one. Does not feel like a show band, does not feel like a Vegas thing, does not feel like a schmaltzy Barry Manilow pop outing. You know, a
1: lot of people call out the 80s horns and the synthesizers. But I don't know, for me, it's it works on this song, this song more than almost anything else from the new album cements it in the mid 80s
0: it is like a big band kind of song but for some reason it's just the way it's like kind of played straight down the middle it has a has an 80s feel to it
1: when well, i think a lot of 80s songs did have those like fake horn stabs synth stabs like that the other songs from this record feel a little more like they'll work in other eras than mulberry here but in recent years the time or two it got brought out with an actual horn section so like they've done it with live horns but it feels so different when they do that
0: so we stay in bridge territory we get baby grand we see what looks like the trappings of billy about to start changing voices or that just that point where he's just treating it like a song and not like an emotional experience do you know what i mean like sometimes sometimes he's playing a song and he's and he's exploring different ways of doing it and often vocally he'll do that so we see him crook his neck. And that's usually the indication he's about to do a Ray Charles. I know. And you're like, really? You gotta do the Ray Charles on the Ray Charles song. There's no impersonation here.
1: Thank goodness, because it I, I think it works better if Billy's not doing too much of that impression. Visually, they had a really nice blue light on Doug as he's playing the upright
0: bass on this song.
1: And much of the rest yeah. of the stage was dark, but Billy and Doug.
0: Doug's not doing anything fancy, but he usually doesn't play upright. The bass in a song like this is clutch, so it's the one to do.
1: Doug has always been a quieter guy. He he was never the flashy performer, player. You know, anytime I get to see, you know, the cameras cut to him or him get a little love in the lighting department, it's it's always nice to see. Doug can be pretty subdued as a as a player as well. He's a little more animated. He's got a little more pep in his step
0: on this show it really is a very intimate performance of the song even in the, at the spectrum i think what really drives that home is uh he makes a couple of minor changes to the lyrics it might have been only one i think there was another one but the one i wrote down was to say instead of saying um but my baby grand came home to me he says but baby grand came home with me just something about saying it like that personifies it and it makes it less of a song about a piano and more a song about a feeling or a concept when you say but baby grand came home it sounds like somebody's nickname not obviously wooden ivory it's more about my love
1: came home to me you know going into uh angry young man here a lot on this tour it was early in the set if not first it's interesting to see this as we're getting closer to mid-set, especially coming out of Baby Grant. Really solid performance. Personally, I love seeing David LeBolt on the, the song. I love his synth work. He was a ball of energy. And I think finally on this tour, giving him like a sparse keyboard setup on a pole that ro- it rotated. He was not in the Emerson, Keith Emerson cage keyboard yeah, keyboards Keith anymore. Emerson land, yeah. Yeah, you know, he got to explore it. And then, you know, you had songs Throughout the set as well, too, where he uh, busted out the keytar, so he was moving around. But I just loved his energy
0: on on this show and on this tour as well. Two years ago, almost three now, we did the the Bridge Tour, and I think you would mention that he was just playing a controller. They were switching all the sounds beneath the stage or somewhere else, right?
1: Yeah, it was an article we read in the Bridge Tour book. Yeah, I believe it was essentially just a mini-controller. Um, And everything was being controlled underneath, which was pretty revolutionary for back then. The big thing they wanted was a very clean stage. If you notice, there's no monitors, no amps visible. It's all under the stage. Mm -hmm. And if you look on the over the head shots of the stage, you see grates all over the place. And that's where all the monitors and everything, um, except for Liberty's giant monitor. Um, I think yeah. that's still there, <laughs> <'Cause>,
0: yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, you can't cheat that. Yeah. Yeah. If you've ever wondered why like somebody has five keyboards, because uh, you know you think of a keyboard as just having all these different sounds with different keyboards, had different attributes and qualities to them, so you wanted to have a few of them. You know, we're talking about synthesizers now, obviously. You know, in the 60s and 70s, your Mellotron, your Hammond organ, and your 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 other things all sounded very different. Yeah. When you saw, you know, something like Live from Long Island, you saw, like, a bunch of keyboards back there because, you know, he just needed all those different sounds. When you think of the keyboard itself as just a controller, meaning, like, you're just pressing the buttons, and that can be sending a signal. It depends on what what that's sending the signal to is going to trigger the sounds and go out. So the keyboard itself, the, the keys are just controlling that. So what they could do was he could just be playing whatever and they're making any patches they need out of sight. I don't know if like he's going into one machine and and somebody down there can just change all, all the patches he created. Or he might have a different a couple different synthesizers down there. He might have a couple different brains. And somebody may be either manually pulling the plugs out in between songs or they just have it where they can switch to you know they could switch to whatever one they're all daisy chained together
1: there was two uh two keyboards on the stage there was actually four there was two i believe it was two yamaha cp80s on the stage and two of the essentially midi controllers you know they're able to dial in all these other sounds with the this keyboard but they're not replicating the cp80 yet they're still using that exact keyboard on stage for the rest of the tour, I think that was a little more because, I mean, a lot of synthesizers are purely electronic. The interesting thing about the Yamaha CP80, it still has mechanics of a piano. That's why there's the big, long, flat top. And you can actually see it when you see Billy flip over the CP80 in Russia. <laughs> yeah, There's hammers and strings inside that keyboard, giving you that, that unique percussive attack. So it may have still been a ways out for developing how to recreate that.
0: We get a whole bunch of 80s and we get like sort of the most intimate sort of reflective he's going to get really from Saigon on. He's really sitting in this unusual emotional place, it seems, for him on stage. But now we're going to loosen up a little because now we're in in more familiar territory Mm -hmm. with Angry Young Man. But when you consider that two of the last three songs were ballads, it feels like a reset.
1: Yeah, it's almost like after the intermission.
0: Exactly. Yeah, he had three songs from the new album and the most rockin' one was still like a kind of laid back jazzy thing. Mm-hmm. Like let's bring it back to like the Billy Roots. And you know, as such, now we see him like performing a little more but still like not just being a performer. Like, yeah, he's see he, I like where he's, he's just sitting there cross legged and he's playing with one hand. You know, he's he's doing it up a little, but he's has a different feel. He feels like he's he's just having fun with it. He's not quite unhinged. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's not like a feat of strength, like you know, sometimes you do show off for the audience because they like that sort of thing, sure. you know. You know, sometimes that's just a thing you do, especially uh, in an arena or something where you, you have to make that point. But it didn't feel like that. It felt like he was just uh, being a little cheeky, being a little fun. A little more good natured than he can sometimes come off. After this, we're staying in the 70s for a
1: minute and going to another one we don't see a lot of in the 80s, it seems, and that's Ballad of Billy the Kid. Later in the tour, I think when they played it, Russell would play the harmonica part here billy is playing it and he messes it up (laughs) (laughs) he like hits a really wrong note and then it kind of rattled him for a second and he made some face probably toward liberty because
0: liberty's gonna give him (laughs) shit about it (laughs) yeah this is a different one he's he's doing some different voices or some different harmonization the chords sound different at the beginning Mm -hmm. Uh, amazingly different but definitely not what we're used to here
1: it's almost like with the beginning of the... Dun, dun,
0: dun, 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 dun. He's like jumping keys before it settles in. Like key signature or like jumping around the keyboard? Key signature. You think he's modulating or you think
1: he's just doing something... He it might have still been in key, but it felt like he was modulating a bit and then he went back to it. Let's see. Hold on. Let's go to the tape.
0: Yeah, I hear what you mean. I don't... It's My weird ear though. is not good enough to tell if he changed keys. He definitely... Put different chords in there because you can definitely hear him like go into chords usually. Because I think he stays on that one thing the whole time, yeah. Usually, but he's but he's definitely like jazzing up those chords. He's throwing in mm-hmm. different notes that's like that's approaching dissonance in that like sort of jazzy kind of way. It could have just been like such a pronounced like one four.
1: It, it very well may have been in the same key. I I'm not the guy to to confirm that for sure. <laughs> but it's it's nor different. am
0: I. But yeah, it's definitely my hypothesis is because he always stays on those few notes on his left hand that yeah. even if you stay in the key it's such a pronounce like Ooh whoa wh- where's he going with this you know it sounds it's gonna right. sound out of key post-production jack here i spoke with my friend matt frankel who plays guitar in the billy Joel tribute with me he explained that the two things going on in the intro to billy the kid here is one billy is jazzing up those chords which means he's playing extra notes that are not usually uh on those chords so uh, major or minor chord is usually only three notes so he's adding different notes on top of them and that's what gives it that jazzy or sort of really honky-tonky or uh, dissonant or almost out of tune feel but the part where we were discussing whether or not there was a key change in there Matt explained that the key is for all intents and purposes in the key of C however he also uses an F major chord in the song now F major is not in the key of C but C is in the key of F major and they also share a lot of chords. So I think technically you could say the song is in F because he's using the F major, but since the song is written around the C chord, you would envision it as written in C, but with the F major as a chord borrowed from another key. So it's a borrowed chord, it it doesn't actually belong there. So what happens is when Billy throws that chromatic run in there, uh, meaning He's just going, he's hitting every chord down the piano. He's not skipping over the chords that don't belong in that key. He's hitting every single one. And that gives that real sort of like almost out of tune feel, uh, that really sort of close uh, interval between each, each chord. So he does this chromatic run and he lands on the F. So you're expecting in the key of C to resolve probably to, to a C major, if not maybe a G major or another chord. But because he stops on the f which in this song is a borrowed chord from another key it sounds like a key change but he's actually not using any chords that he hasn't been using elsewhere in the song so it's technically not a key change but the way he sets it up makes it feel like it is yeah again you know just in good voice and he sounds Mm -hmm. very sincere for a song that's just fake western yeah He somehow wrestles some emotion, some genuine uh, emotion out of it.
1: I'm just captivated with how he's singing for this whole show. It's such an interesting snapshot. This is a longer song, too, so it's easier to get meandering. And it never gets there here. It's kind of towards the end. He's trying to get the crowd participation with a
0: na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, but
1: they just end up screaming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, there was like 10 people that were like, no, that's what we're supposed to. You guys ruined it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, speaking of flubs... Did you catch this one on An Innocent Man? Which is the real shame, I think. What moment? If you listen very closely, when he's going into the first B section, He clearly starts singing a different word and then corrects himself. Yes, yes. I was so torn about whether to uh, point it out because like this concert is so good and he's so clearly in a very nice place mentally or emotionally or whatever. But that's kind of what we're here for. Right, I know. (laughs) This is kind of what we do. See,
1: this song, it's easy to get lost. Most of the verses, if not all, I don't have a lyric in front of me, but it's like some people, some people, some people. So it's easy to forget which one you're in.
0: And it's something you, you don't realize until you try to sing this stuff that like, at the risk of this sounding uh, like an insult, it's like a Dr. Seuss thing, where it's like, you, you hear a lot of the same words, but you're swapping things in and out, which does make it very easy to get lost in where you are.
1: At the beginning, the crowd is clapping on every beat and he's trying to correct him. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah he's like no it's only Try on the snapping l- yeah <laughs> and it's only on the last one you know of the phrase yeah. <laughs> but you can tell he's really trying to like guide them and to be like no 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 wait now you know like a couple times through it um just trying to get them hip to like the way this one goes is <laughs>
0: Now what I did notice too, which I think fits his idiom for the night, when Peter's singing, he he just drops his head down. It's a subtle nod to Peter because he's not making any illusion that he's not singing this. Just in case somebody didn't notice.
1: He takes the focus away from him. We've heard versions of this where Peter goes a little wild. (laughs) (laughs) yeah and again this is another example where there's a few moments of it but it is overall very well
0: contained this is one that can drag but it stays up there the whole time i think he is again just mining something emotionally in this show and on a song like this that really worked out
1: and we're staying on the same album here going into the next one which is the longest time the guys in the band come down front as usual they start with trying to do lion Sleeps tonight but then billy (laughs) says "No, no no it's too fast for that too fast (laughs)
0: Right. These things seem to be happening in the moment still, you know? Yeah. Like he goes up, he plays the drums for a minute. (laughs) This whole opening sequence, I've
1: got a ton of notes on because it just tickled me. Billy is now, for the first time of the night, with a wireless mic. Right. So he's going to choose this moment to explore the stage a bit. So as they're starting, just kind of riffing out in the beginning there, Billy kind of wanders off to the back where the one CP80 is, like right near the crowd. The band, I think, was kind of looking like where to go, <laughs> you know. And you could hear right. Billy, Billy going, "I'm coming back, I'm coming back." But on his way back right. downstage, he makes a pit stop, like you said, at Liberty's drums, and, and grabs a stick, just doing this. Uh, I don't know how to describe the
0: rhythm he's playing on the uh, on the toms. It's a uh, hey, it's Latin. Yes, it, it totally is. <laughs> telling you there's, there's like the secret latin billy thing going on this is my new this is my new thing well i mean it starts off like a kind of a swing gene Krupa, doo, 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 doo. if you don't want to say sing 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 like everybody else we'll, we'll say king louis from uh the jungle book but then when he hears that bop 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 you know that like that triplet thing like that yeah that's a timbali move that's a total sure.
1: timbali thing it's like it was like surprising he had great rhythm on drums but it shouldn't be surprising because he's got great rhythm well, you know yeah, piano is still
0: it. percussive
1: right and then you know after he finishes the thing um liberty stands up <laughs> gives him a big old <laughs> kiss so he finally makes his way back down towards the rest of the guys in the band did you notice the count off going into the song itself?
0: Yeah, it's a matter of trust fake out. Yeah, much slower, obviously, but he doesn't matter of trust. For an album of pastiche, seem to mind something that gen- emotionally genuine is, is a pleasant surprise. It's not required, but certainly enjoyable. This is again, you know, we, I haven't said this in, well, a, probably 45 minutes in real time, not edited time. But once again, he's not pushing, but it's just got force to it. It's just got motion to it, just mm-hmm. like those early songs didn't have a sharp attack, but they, they they just had a push. They had momentum. Momentum is the word
1: I'm gonna Yeah. For. I love how he's just having fun messing around with the guys in the band.
0: Yeah, it's a good one for that because he's been sitting a lot this show and he's clowning around, not in that real uh trying to show off way, but it does seem like he's genuinely just dicking around up there.
1: I don't know if he's got like some like stuffed animal or some little thing that maybe somebody in the audience gave him. He's you can see him like kinda of messing with like George Sims and Mark with it. But then, you know, you'll see him put his arms around the guys and just kind of get in their face. I think he goes, gets like down low and he like puts his arm around, arms around like Russell's leg, just being silly and goofy.
0: Yeah, we don't see that that often. It doesn't always feel scripted when he does these things, but it definitely feels developed. Like they definitely figured out where to go and what to do. And they're definitely aware that they're on stage usually. And they're doing bigger motions for the audience. Yeah. Uh, here it just seems like, you know, that they're doing it for themselves
1: so the configuration of this if you guys haven't seen any of the video footage so obviously it's billy and then you have singing you have peter hewlett george sims russell javers and mark rivera dave lebolt and david brown are off stage taking a break doug and liberty are um you know doug is like right next to liberty they're providing the rhythm section for this too
0: and it's a nice touch when they would do that
1: the tricky thing is with the big stage you want to make the most of the big stage and sometimes when you do that it can lose the intimacy so like the moments where Mm -hmm. they kind of get together and vibe off each other and kind of bring that back and after a a nice introduction for uh, peter and george again you know a lot of the in between is cut so we really have no bearing on the banter here we really don't know any of the jokes or in between stuff that kind of went down or the band introduction but I, I have a feeling like you said this show may not have been as loose with that as others after this one we go into just the way you are i think this one sounded good this is uh, another one where billy would uh, soon after retire it for quite a long time
0: i was sort of watching to see if he was going to look bored on this one me too and i think he came close but he was chilling he didn't feel necessarily bored with it, but he didn't feel too connected with it. He didn't feel like he was putting it on for the audience either.
1: This is one where, you know, Mark has gone many places with the saxophone parts and solo on this song. He really shined on this tune.
0: Yeah, he found some new ways around that, into that melody. That solo took a couple pleasurable uh, lights. And then his big line on this is, what will it take to you believe? Like That's one, like, like I was saying in some earlier songs, this is the, the line where like he just almost inadvertently Gave it some extra gravitas, gave it some extra force. Okay, now, Only the Good Die Young. I feel like it's a shame he had to do it. He's been in such a reflective mood all night, and now he has to try to do a rave up. Yeah. And you can see he doesn't get into it right away. He's just sort of like strolling around the stage at first. He's just walking around like it's the
1: first time he saw the stage, and he's just checking it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he was starting to meander, I spent most of my time on this song... Focusing on the stage design and production. Big shout out to our our friend Steve Cohen. I'll go on record to say this tour and the Nylon Curtain Tour are my two favorite stage productions. They
0: just have, both have so much character to them. I don't disagree with you. I think they're very understated.
1: It's hard to see in some of the video footage, but we we talked about the Nylon one, which is that industrial look with the pipes and the grates and all that. All the different levels to that one, which are really, it's really cool how that one was laid out. This one is a lot of very slight angles the stage is pitched as it goes Mm. back so like the back of the stage is higher but it's not like a ramp to get up there it's not stairs the stage pitches up as it goes back it creates a real interesting
0: shape and that brings us into still rock and roll to me where i feel like he's still doing this so he's doing the head down thing again in this one at times which just Mm -hmm. seems like he's just like kind of digging the moment in a more introspective way than usual yeah, and this is the point where his really Zen attitude in the show really comes out because this is possibly his snarkiest, most caustic song, even more so than the Entertainer. I would say so. I would say so. But he's got no fight in him, and I say that in the in the most positive way possible. He's just chilling, man. Again, like you almost wish he called an audible. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's easy for us to say now because we didn't pay good hard earned 1986 American dollars to see him in concert, you know, and you're like, you son of a bitch. You're not doing the rock block at the end. Right. Because You're not in the mood. Yeah. But, you know, almost 40 years on, you're like, oh, man, it would have been nice.
1: You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To keep with the vibe of the show. During this show, Doug's one of the guys that's almost never on camera. Uh, He gets a nice couple shots here. I could see Doug bopping along. This This is one, too, where I notice him more. Uh, You know, and part of it's he's not singing, so he's not at a mic, but he's wandering over to Liberty, and you can kind of see him, like, rocking back and forth a bit. Doug seemed to be in a really good mood on the show, you know, knowing how things were near the end and things weren't always great, yada yada. Seeing moments like this where he, you know, he and the band just seemed to be having a great show, great time. I I love seeing that. You know, it's like the whole Let It Be, Get Back Beatles thing, where it's like the Let It Be documentary painted it as like, oh, you know. This was the end of the Beatles and things were really dark and things didn't go well. But then, you know, when they recut it as Get Back, it's like, oh, wow, there's, you know, Paul and John laughing like they did 10 years ago. Sure, there were the dark moments, but there was a lot of fun. And I think that's the case for this bridge tour. Like, we know how it ended we know there was the seismic shift at the end. We talked about a lot of those stories, but there's almost 150 shows. There was a lot of light A lot of good moments A
0: lot of fun Now sometimes a fantasy Yeah You can't watch him In 1986 At the CP80 And not watch him Flip the damn thing over It's I just know, like I kept you're just waiting, waiting for it, for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know I noticed The lights weren't
1: Nearly as aggressive During this song As they were in Russia either So that's something to <laughs> yeah. say Yeah Ironically You could see the people Dancing behind them <laughs> That's true On the side That's true yeah. At the end it's still Rock and roll to me That's when he walks over to the CP80 and does the, you know, at the end of Still Rock and Roll to be from the CP80. And they almost immediately go in. That's been the one-two punch for a minute. Like they were doing that on the Nylon
0: Curtain Tour. Again, you see him opening up a little more. He's definitely engaging with the audience, but he's not as like over the top. As he could be. There's sometimes what he's doing as a pantomime, but it's still somehow a little controlled. Uh Dave Labolt, however, with that Kitar is doing some heavy lifting there. <laughs> yeah, he's got the kicks going on. And- the more I look at this, because the lighting is is bright and he's on the side of the stage, it feels like it makes sense here how and why he's more just riding the wave because he just seems to blend a little more with the people behind him. You know what I mean? He seems like he's part of a dance party. Just the way it's shot. You uh, see
1: Alex Costello now. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right? <laughs> another killer guitar solo from David Brown just laying it out at the end. Yeah, he's got a lot of moments in this one. This was, is this was another great example of it.
1: And, you know, for another guy who's not a big spotlight guy, that's one thing I always kind of loved about that band. Like, they weren't, they weren't rock stars. They weren't, like, craving to be, like, in front.
0: Undersung point, yeah.
1: You know, it's like they were serving the song, and, like, David could step out and rip it, but, like, he's not doing your stereotypical guitar god thing even though he's he's a capable guitar player but like he was
0: just you know stepping up enough playing his thing then coming going back he's doing the mark Knopfler, you know not only because he's finger picking now we're definitely ramping up you know even though it's not the same kind of vibe he usually has now we're into you may be right this is clear rock block territory oh yeah and you know he's really hamming it up now which you know, it makes it a good balance. Like, you know, you started off with most of the show, I would say, the audience was getting treated to a different side of Billy. Unless you're going to go home a little disappointed, right. you're getting the, the rave up that you paid for, or expected at least. As we've said, you know, Billy has sort of trained his audience to expect a certain amount of consistency. Like, you know what you're going to get.
1: You May Be Right has been near the end of the show
0: since 1982. <laughs> Having your audience expect that consistency makes it harder to step out of that box on this performance in particular, something I didn't see a lot
1: on, on footage over the years was you get to see some cool moments of, uh, David Brown and Doug Stegmaier vibing together. And Billy's starting to get a little, uh, get a little looser. He comes up behind David Brown and like hugs him from behind. Like he's, he he was almost treading into drunk uncle territory for a minute. or drunk friend. (laughs) I think he does that with David, that kind of stuff with David, because David doesn't react to it. Like, David's not a let-loose guy on stage, and he doesn't play back, really. And so it kind of makes it a little funnier, in a way. And so David kind of gives a little chuckle or something like that, and then keeps playing.
0: Again, it's that you know palpable but indescribable thing where it's like, dude, it's the middle of the 80s. He's coming off an innocent man. They are dressed, as you said, like Miami Vice. And yet somehow... This is a great intimate show. Like we shouldn't be phoning over a 1986 performance. We shouldn't be this happy with a concert that has Liberty also playing electronic drums that look like giant stop signs. Yeah,
1: you know, but it works. The solo on this is one that Mark often uh, will go in many places with, especially the last 20 years or so. This is one of the performances of that solo where he's actually sticking fairly close melodically
0: to the to, uh, Richie. I wonder what the decision is like on some of those parts you know is it night tonight does he uh does he do it in the moment do they have a discussion sometimes
1: near the end here we have some women jumping up on stage to uh, hug and kiss billy yeah woman even gets on the mic and yells philadelphia loves billy joel and uh
0: he just goes it's a philly thing people have no respect for the stage in philadelphia folks
1: okay i wish you could see the video Cause, you know, we talk about Billy kind of cruising in the same gear Most of the show
0: So has Jack Until this moment If you're a bitch or on a bar floor People will walk by, just play the keyboard I've seen people just go up and like try to have a conversation with you While you're playing I like it, but I don't like it But I don't like it But I, kinda, I understand it, but I don't like it Yeah, he says,
1: I love you too, see you later And he ducks off stage <laughs> awesome. After he runs away from them Smartly so Wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah we have a bit of an encore break here as everyone ducks yeah. off stage and then we're back from it with uptown girl
0: what i like about this sequence here it's like the two big flashy 80s pop hits and then like the the original philly special right and that's how he ends this one
1: quite an interesting way to end it with uptown girl the guitars are really up in the mix and you could really hear what russ and dave are doing like i've got instrumental versions of uptown girl because Of course I do you know on the album version the guitars don't stand out either they're just nice and tucked back in the mix so you can really like hear like wow like okay yeah they're playing this bit from them from the studio version and it's really interesting to hear some of the guitar work on this album which uh, this song but it's some really interesting stuff
0: a lot of tasty arpeggios and stuff and and it gives it a different feel I always like the bridge era versions of uptown girl yeah it's a little less baggage from like having to recreate it because it's the album tour and hasn't been played to death yet
1: yeah, it's right in that sweet spot where it, it still feels good. They settled into a nice tempo with it, too, where it's not just too off the charts fast.
0: Tell Her About It might be one of those songs that's probably good you don't hear it too often, so when you do, you're like, all right, I can dig it. I, I feel like I'd be great on you if you have to hear it too many times in the supermarket. But what a great end-of-the-show kind of rave-up thing, you know, yeah. when you once again shake off the baggage of it being the album tour, so you have to do it probably a little closer to the record. right? You know, and it's, it's the end of the set. Right. everything's just hanging loose at this point
1: you know I know a lot of people have talked about some of the cheesiness of it but it's like the song you know I'm a, from Metro Detroit so I'm a Motown guy I grew yeah. up on all those records to me that's fun it's a little taste of you know Motown so it's a lot of fun for me I don't know if he's hamming it up but he seems to be having a good time with it because
0: in recent years he would like shit on this song <laughs> right so if you hear it too many times you're sick of it for a long long time and then you don't want to do it he stopped playing this song the following year because you get sick of it yeah i actually looked it up
1: because i knew it disappeared not long after tell her about it was last performed live halloween 1987 in melbourne australia which is crazy because it's it's one of
0: his two number one songs in america yeah i mean it's it's also pretty high And I don't think you could bring the key down on this one and get the same effect. No. Like, you could really hear the difference on, like, keeping the fake. is a big one, yeah. I feel like he's he's now between moods, in a way. Uh Uh-huh. Because he went from this, like, introspective beginning of the show to, like, doing the rave up, and now it's, you know, he says he doesn't like performing this song that much, and maybe it was not the same back then, but, you know, he kind of only does it in Philly. Even in the 80s, you know, he gives a really good rendition of it, but he just seems like... I don't think it's that he doesn't know where to go with it on this particular night, but he's just, like, kind of caught between moods. (laughs) It shows just a little. This is the first time in the show I feel like he's got to think a little bit about what he's going to do, like, which direction he's going to take this. Again, pure conjecture. You know, I mean, this is, like, a a reading of this whole show, but that's... And to your point, how he,
1: you know, he really didn't play it much out of Philly, especially by this point, this entire tour, I only counted like four to five total performances out of almost 150 shows or whatever whatever crazy it was
0: you know he really brings back the 70s voice on this one though yeah like there's this there's moments on it when you're like wow that really sounds like early billy it's the diction you know along with the along with the quality of his voice for as much energy as they give it he rarely goes like kind of nuts vocally you know he he's always somewhat detached which sort of fits the theme of the song yeah. it leaves it up to mostly Lib, but also the rest of the band to, to build up that excitement. That's really where the dynamics lie, to the instruments to give that feel of like at least what the protagonist is feeling. You can't you can't yeah. yell it because it's not doesn't work that's, well with that
1: passion. Yeah, that's not the feeling of this.
0: And that brings us to the end of uh, of this show. Yeah, they go out. The PPA has booted their bus. Everybody's yelling about the goddamn parking authority. <laughs> <laughs> that's the true philly special yep yep <laughs> i spent a week in philly one night <laughs> yeah no it's a great show i think so anyway i yeah. really want to know if anybody else uh, keyed into what we we're talking about with this just sort of different side of billy we see in this show obviously if you've heard us talk about it all episodes, you're you're super biased but if you have heard it before i'm curious to see if you picked up on it And if this is your first time Tell us what you thought about it You know uh, GlassHousesPodcast At gmail.com Or find us on the socials GlassHouses A Billy Joel Podcast I almost say GlassHouses A gmail podcast Because <laughs> it's getting to that point in the night Yeah We still have another episode to record That's and right I am getting a cold And find us on Yield Discord you want to talk about Yield Discord there? Yes uh, I will
1: Yeah It's a great community of uh, listeners And Billy fans That we Um put online about oh november december last year and it's grown nicely we've got great spirited conversations about billy about other music you name it it's a lot of fun and we also do monthly watch parties where we'll pick a classic show like this one or a documentary or a of music videos we'll screen it together and discuss it and uh, yeah it's a lot of fun it's a it's a good way you know because with the podcast is just us talking to each other and it just good uh goes out into the atmosphere yeah. and to your preferred podcast client this is a nice way we get a chance to chat with you guys and get to know you a bit and it's a lot of fun so we've got a link for that in the show notes uh along with all the other social media stuff so if you head into there uh you can click onto that to register
0: that's it for us uh, did i make a cheesesteak joke a couple episodes ago
1: we did talk about it, how like Pat's and Geno's was like the tourist trap of cheesesteak Place.
0: Yeah, alright, so I can't make that one again. I don't know, I'm gonna go uh, not crash a stage so I'll see you guys next time. <laughs> alright, we'll see you soon everyone. Thanks.